0: You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, O'Reilly's Max Slocum chats with Alistair Allen, director at Babylon Light Industries. In their wide-ranging conversation, Alistair talks about the data coming out of the New Horizons Pluto flyby, the future of personal space programs, and why Bluetooth LE is cracking open the Internet of Things. Enjoy the show. You've been working recently with Bluetooth LE, is that right? Yeah, that's right. How does that differ from traditional Bluetooth?
1: So the only thing Bluetooth LE shares with traditional Bluetooth is the name. Oh, it's one of those. It's one of those. (laughs) Um, So Bluetooth LE is actually part of the Bluetooth 4 standard. Now, Bluetooth 4 standard has three different types of Bluetooth. It has Bluetooth that you're used to, Bluetooth Classic, which is what most people are calling it, Bluetooth LE, which is the low-powered version of Bluetooth, and Bluetooth High Speed, which is actually based around Wi-Fi and has absolutely no similarities with Bluetooth whatsoever. There's also the confusing terminology of Bluetooth smart because Bluetooth LE is actually marketed as something called Bluetooth smart. And there's Bluetooth smart ready devices. These do Bluetooth classic and Bluetooth LE. Um, And this is not meant to be confusing whatsoever. No, it makes total sense. Yeah.
0: So I read in your session write up that there's some devices that employ Bluetooth LE, but they don't actually use the low energy part of it. Why is
1: that? Right, so the the whole point of Bluetooth LE is it's supposed to be low energy, right? It offers um, much constrained bandwidth. But in return, it gives you much lower power constraint, power usage, and the, the constraints are much less. So effectively, you can use a Bluetooth low, uh, low energy device in a, a low polling mode for maybe a year or so off a, a simple um, cell battery, mm-hmm. a, a tiny little um, coin battery, which is pretty cool. You know it, it, that enables you a whole bunch of things to do a whole bunch of things you couldn't do before. Um, the problem is that a lot of people aren't used to how Bluetooth LE works. In the past, you've probably thought about a radio as a telephone, right? You pick up the telephone, you talk, you wait. The person at the other end talks to you, then you talk to them. It's a, it's an exchange, yes? Bluetooth LE more or less actually works like a, a bulletin board. What happens is the radio posts information to the bulletin board. And every so often, you go and grab information from the bulletin board. So it's a... It's a sort of pub-sub model, really. Mm-hmm. I guess is the mm-hmm. way to put it, for it in the software terms. And you can also be, no- you can also get the radio to notify you, uh, t- so you can subscribe to notifications on an LE radio. And a lot of the uh, LE chips, uh, chipset breakout boards that are shipping, especially to the maker market. Have uh, a UART service. So effectively, they're layering this TXRX serial paradigm on top of this bulletin board paradigm. And it doesn't really work because effectively, what you're doing is you're keeping the radio up the whole time. So the low energy features aren't used. Right. So, what's your motivation with working with Bluetooth LE? How did you get into this? So, Bluetooth LE solves what I always called the 50% problem, um, which is that. The Internet of Things is taking off because of smartphones, effectively, right now. This is why we're seeing this rapid growth. Suddenly, in their hands, people have a way to interface into things. Things that don't necessarily have to have screens or keyboards themselves. They have the smartphone. But the the problem in the past was always, how do you talk to these things? And of course, Wi-Fi is one of the things that smartphones had. But Wi-Fi takes a lot of power, which means that things had to be connected to the wall. They had to have really big batteries and it wasn't really that great. Bluetooth LE, now that Google Android also supports it, has solved the 50% problem. The 50% problem was only half the smartphones in the world, the Apple half, had Bluetooth LE. And now that all of the smartphones in the world have Bluetooth LE, or at least the more modern ones, there is a very easy way to produce low-powered devices, wearables, um, embedded sensors, um, all this sort of stuff that anyone can access with a smartphone. Mentally, the range is not great. You're 10 or 15 meters or so. But it, it's a real lever to, to drive the Internet of Things forward. And, and you're seeing a lot of the progress on the Internet of Things. A lot of the innovation is happening, especially on Kickstarter, around BLE devices.
0: So it's cracking up in the whole IoT? Yeah. What is your perspective on the term Internet of Things? I hate the term Internet of Things. Yeah,
1: I thought you might. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the Internet of Things is neither about the internet nor really the things. Um, I, I much prefer the, the academic term which was ubiquitous computing, mm-hmm. um, but no one really seemed to want to use that, right. which is somewhat unfortunate. The, the Internet of Things really isn't about connecting things to the internet, and that's where a lot of I think the manufacturers are going wrong right now. They're adding a network interface to things, and they're calling an IoT device, and that's not really what it's about. It's about putting computing and sensing everywhere. It's about making, making things smarter. It's not about giving them a network connection. So, yes, the whole thing's really misnamed.
0: Do you think we're going to keep holding on to that term for a while?
1: I think it's the term that's won. Yeah. Um, there, there's, you know, the the industrial internet, internet of everything, the, the, a few other people have coined terms. Right. I don't think any of those are really going to take off. I think the industrial internet has a certain subset, a certain re- um, resonant thing going for it. And I think you're going to see that going forward for a certain specific type of thing, which is CAN bus or, or SCADA systems connected to the internet. Um, but I think for consu- on the consumer side, the Internet of Things is the, is the term that's won. It's the term that's got popular press. It's got a term that's that people know.
0: We've talked in the past about things like smart dust and wearables. Yep. What do you see happening there in the short term?
1: So uh, um, there's no short term for smart dust. Smart dust is dust. So direct, not going to happen in six months? I'm afraid not, no. Regrettably, it's still a long-term uh, wish list, I think. But wearables, I think wearables are actually starting to become interesting. The problem with wearables is and always has been power. Um, They're hard to power you need to carry around batteries, you need to, uh, the, the power consumption of the wearables to do something useful was always high. But there's actually some interesting innovations going on right now in passive power generation. So there was a new thermoelectric generator, uh, a flexible one made of uh, glass fibers that you can actually put across uh, your skin hmm. that would generate power based on the the temperature difference between your skin and the ambient air. And it's actually generating, they've got it in the lab up to the point where now where it's generating enough power to drive reasonable amounts of uh mcus uh, and sensors which is a really innov- interesting innovation and there's a couple of other passive power generation things that are starting to get to the point where it's useful amounts of power but beyond that um i'm actually looking quite hard at pebble smart strap right now which you might have come across mm-hmm. this i'm actually wearing a, a pebble time right now and this has a, a port in it that will actually talk um to external accessories effectively the uh, the strap and Pebble has opened this up to, to the world. They've, they've put out CAD drawings of the connector you have to build with the pins. And they haven't yet put out any of the software side. I think that's expected September or November or something like that. But it looks really interesting because you can do TX and RX. So you can push data in and out. But you can also power. So there's, you can either power the strap from the watch or you can power the watch from the strap. Hmm. Um, which means that suddenly you've got a power source for wearable but you've also got a radio for the wearable. So your actual your actual design of whatever it is you want to do can be limited to the thing you actually want to do. You don't have to worry about a display. You don't have to worry about the radio. You don't have to worry about power. And that could be a real lever to open up the wearables market in the same way the BLE was a lever to open up the the IoT market because people had suddenly had the display and they, the way to interact with... Right an IoT thing, suddenly there's a way to interact with a wearable thing, which is the watch. And of course, Apple have um, their own debug port in the Apple Watch, which is um, not released. Not it's entirely proprietary. They haven't told anyone how it works or right. anything. But there are a couple of people that have looked at it, and there are actually products in the market that are going to use it. And how long those are going to stay around sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, a matter for some debate, right. I think. will
0: move quickly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Totally different topic, but given your your past in astrophysics, I they had to ask you about this. What's your take on the New Horizons
1: flyby of Pluto? Right. So to be clear, I'm not a planetary scientist. I was an astrophysicist, and that is a totally different discipline. But saying that, um, first of all, it's an amazing engineering feat. It's uh, nine and a half years, three billion miles. They cross 7,000 miles from the surface of Pluto just—it's just amazing. That's an insane, <laughs> insane achievement. I, you know, I—that's amazing. Um, from the actual data that's coming back, is really baffling. Which is, as a scientist, is the the absolutely best thing that could possibly happen. Yeah. The the surface features on Pluto are far too young, so you would expect um, an object that far out in the Kuiper Belt to have lots of impact craters because there's lots of junk floating around there. There's hardly any impact craters on the surface of Pluto, so that means that the surface itself is active. There's, there's you know, some sort of geothermal activity, perhaps. Um, something has happened to clean away all the impact craters. You know, there's a reason why Earth has no impact craters and the Moon has lots. Mm-hmm. We have plate tectonics. We have weather. We have all these sort of things that change that. Whereas the moon has none of these things, which is why you see the craters. Mm. And there should have been craters on Pluto, and there really isn't, which is interesting. Also, there's these huge mountain ranges, three and a half thousand meters tall, and they're pointy. There is no way the mountains on Pluto should be pointy. (laughs) Earth has pointy mountains, but we have weather, we have flowing water. Titan has pointy mountains, but it has flowing methane. So does this mean Pluto has some sort of flowing liquid? I mean, the possibilities are going to be nitrogen or neon, perhaps. Seas of neon? Mm -hmm. That's just... Wasn't expecting that. No, wasn't expecting that. Right. And Charon and itself is also equally, uh, Pluto's major moon is equally baffling. So there's some amazing things coming out of those results. And we're still, and despite the fact that flyby has happened, the spacecraft still has most of its data on board and mm-hmm. it's, it'll be slowly transmitting that back. So yeah, there's fascinating insights going to come out of that mission. Fascinating. And,
0: and where do you come down on
1: planet versus dwarf planet? <laughs> um it's a matter of semantics if you yeah. want to call it a planet I mean, it quite literally is it a matter is, of it's semantics, an entirely right? a matter of semantics it's um so for instance ceres the the biggest asteroid in the asteroid belt well for about 50 years that was classed as a planet it was the fifth planet from the sun it had a planetary symbol uh, you know the the mm-hmm. original pl- nine planets have planetary symbols had, ceres had a planetary symbol um it was a planet and we downgraded it 19 something or other and you don't hear any no complaints about that and you don't hear a <laughs> about that because it was a while ago right um and and pluto is the same thing it's 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 going to it's the biggest of a whole bunch of cupia belt objects and in fact from pluto uh, new horizons is now targeting another cupia belt object and it's going to be fascinating to see yeah. the comparison between that and pluto um so call it a planet if it makes you happy <laughs>
0: Good answer. Uh, last question for you: What people or projects are you following these days?
1: So uh, I'm looking very hard right now at um, on the the small scale uh, the, the ESP eight two six six, which is a, a Wi-Fi chipset coming out of China. It uh, can be had in quantities of tens or hundreds for around $2 a chip. It's a full uh, MCU, so it has GPIO ports. It's entirely flexible, and it has Wi-Fi on board, and it's cheap as chips, mm-hmm. no, no pun intended. <laughs> um, so that's an, a, it's a really interesting product that, that's driving, that will drive some innovation in the IoT space uh, right now. I'm also looking, in a slightly larger scale, at space because i think over the next couple of years the the small satellite market is really going to take off Uh, one of the conferences i'm going to this year um, which is my interest conference the one i go to because it's not immediately applicable but i think it will be (laughs) is the uh, small satellite conference in august in utah and i think within the next five years we'll see a vast increase in the number of people building their own satellites we will see the cost of getting these things into orbit plummet, and it's already plummeted. Go on, don't get me wrong; you can, for the price of a high-end car, you can put a satellite in orbit now. You can build and put a, your own satellite right. in orbit, and I think I think the phrase "personal space program" is is coming soon. Nice. Um, I, I think the the barrier to getting things into orbit is going to drop, and the the places these satellites can go are going to increase. The NASA is offering. Um, slots in the Translunar Injection Orbit for the, the the first test of the SLS around the Moon, for instance. I, I think there's some CubeSats scheduled to go up on that. Um, but beyond that, the smaller satellites, um, that small, smaller than CubeSat size, are, are really quite obtainable. And there's, there's, way, there's standardization stuff going through now that, that could mean there's going to be a lot of these available, a lot of launch slots. So, um, yeah, next couple of years, space. Personal space programs. All right. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me.
0: You can reach Alistair through his Twitter handle at A.Ellen. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe through Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.